Keeping Track, and you're listening to Molly Huddle, Alicia Montano, and Roisin McGettigan-Dumas. We want to highlight the important topics, inspiring stories, and amazing women in sport. We're three Olympians from two countries, two moms, and one current pro coming together to talk about issues we're passionate about in the sports world. And we care about the current and future landscape of women's sports. And this is just how we're keeping track. Hi, listeners. Welcome back to Keeping Track. Today's interview is with 800-meter runner Kate Grace. We don't have a catch-up portion for today's interview. We're just going to dive right in. As you guys remember, Kate was on fire earlier in the track season, and we can't wait to see what she does in this post-Olympics second half of the season. So keep your eyes out for Kate Grace. We talked about everything. It was really more of a roundtable conversation, as we tend to do with Kate. She has some really interesting topics every time we talk to her. Um, we start with her journey from a well-rounded Yale student to learning how to be a focused professional athlete. We even talk about the business side of track and field, which I find pretty interesting. We talked about spike technology. We talked about the 2016 Olympic trials. And most importantly, we talked about how Kate has learned to listen to herself in regards to which event she chose to focus on. And I think it's working out pretty good. So without further delay, here is Kate Grace. A big shout out to Saucony for sponsoring our season two production costs. At Saucony, a good day is when we get to run. A great day is when we inspire someone else to run. Run for good and thanks for keeping track. We have Kate Grace. We all know Kate's stats. She is a 2016 Olympic finalist in the 800. Also a world championship team member in the 1500. So Kate is true mid-D. Recently, after racing in one of the deepest, probably most legendary U.S. trials finals in finishing seventh at the U.S. Olympic trials, she went and had her tour de force in Europe, running 157 three times and winning Oslo Diamond League. You are, I think we looked up earlier, Kate is leading the Diamond League leaderboard right now. So that's really exciting. We'll have to keep an eye on the second half of her season. But we want to talk to Kate about not just running. We want to talk to her about a lot of things. So we're always excited to chat with Kate. And we're going to dive right in. We're diving right in. Um, so I'm going to just kick this off really quick. So Kate, first of all, I want to know a little, uh, just some background about like your running career, where you started, what you did in college, and like how you got to where you are right now where we're staring at professional Kate Grace. Yeah. Um, I'm so happy to be here also, you guys. I love what you guys do. So I grew up in California, went through like California track, whatever. The, it was like a small school, but it's always fun. By the end, I was like mixing it up with everybody. Um, but I was never really, it's funny now looking back at high school phenoms or whatever, never really like the phenom. Um, I went to a small school and then went to a small college I went to well we went to Yale so this like not not I knew I wanted to run in college but I was never like it wasn't like I was going purely for like the athletics of it uh, it wasn't like I mean it was an incredible experience but it wasn't like now looking at how people train in school it was definitely not that it was like probably a, definitely a step down in terms of um let's say I had a balanced lifestyle maybe like not the most dedicated so I loved my college experience. It was always like, um, 
I say that I got a great opportunity to practice being competitive. Like I was never training a ton. I would always like take tons of time off in the summer, in the fall, come back in January, super out of shape, get myself into shape by like whatever June I'd like make nationals. And that was always a big deal because no one else like on my team was doing that. But it was like my top finish nationals was fifth my senior year. So definitely not like super standout, but I think just like knowing how little I was training with what I was able to do. So college was dedicated to running, but definitely also like doing my own thing. A lot of the time I like took a semester off of school one year. Uh, just, I don't know. I was a little bit not lost, but like maybe a little bit. I feel and... like Ivy's encouraged that though. Like that's, <laughs> you're probably not the abnormal Ivy league athlete. Yeah. 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 I mean, Honestly, it was, it's more abnormal now with like within my circle of pro runner friends. Mm-hmm. But, but at the time it was very like, I was normal or if anything, my friends thought I was like insanely dedicated because most people were doing a lot. Like, I, yeah. I always felt kind of guilty for not having more like extracurriculars or whatever. My senior year, I never really understood what running, what like pro running was, but basically I was going to have, I was done with school in January and the. 2012 trial in 2012 and so or December so there were six months until the trials so at my time I was like okay I was like oh I could just like let me just go and try to train for the trials for 2012 and that will be like a cool thing an interesting thing to do because I don't know what I'm gonna do after school and uh Sarah Lesko who is really who's like a big person and it's she's involved with Wazelle and like a she was a Yale alum and she came up to me my senior year of college and basically like not accosted me but was like got my face at the summer one event was like kate i know who you are you need to keep running after school like you're you you can be really good just because she knew that i hadn't trained very much and sarah's honestly been like a very godparent or just like just a wonderful woman and in my life who's been such um her and her husband have been like huge impact in my life in terms of guiding me through the pro running world and just giving me advice and like structure and being kind of like parental figures um and that started then when I was a senior and from that point I went to New Jersey New York track club with that with Frank Gagliano and kind of started learning about the pro running world I remember Julie Cully was like she was a 5k athlete that year who made the team and she was the one that I really like looked I saw her and saw like kind of the dedication that she went through and had this incredible breakout making the team um and just started to like understand what it took and actually more so actually get the respect like oh man this is like a profession it's not i'm not gonna be able to do this in six months like this is a thing you need to dedicate your life to but also like that didn't fully scare me that just got me excited to say like i actually think i think i could i think if i like really dedicated to this like maybe in a few years i could really be like be good and i don't know things kind of snowballed from there i guess like i it's funny i feel like at the time i've always i mean my first training trip was in 2013 with Julie Cully in Arizona and Molly was there. And I remember like being so excited that Molly was there. I've always really looked up to Alicia because you've been in California. And I used to, it was like looking at Berkeley when you were there. And I was like, Oh, if I could train with her one day. So I don't know. It's, just, it's funny. Just like thinking back to that point in time and like looking up to you guys. And I was so naive then. And it's now been like, what, nine years since that time. It's, it's, it's like, it takes so much longer than you think. I'm like, oh, fuck, right. I'm going to do this in a year. <laughs> Dude, I would have totally loved for you to come train with me in 2013. I was like I dying know. for a teammate. <laughs> when I got pregnant, people were like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, oh my gosh, that's so amazing. I love hearing all of that. And it's interesting to hear people's perspective on what they thought like dedicated athletes looked like. And I've been 
so the same. Uh, I don't know. I did the same thing my entire career where I was like, ah, it's off season. I need two months. I'll talk to you soon. I don't think I went a single season without taking six weeks off after season, like literally six weeks. I know there's several people that are like, Ooh, I can't go more than a week or whatever. I'm like, Ooh, I need to go play soccer. I need to go balance, recalibrate. But, um, so I love that so much about you. And I think that's, uh, do you think part of that has played into your career escalation on what would have been in ideal, like pretend worlds, which don't exist. Everybody, I'm just going to say this right now, like over the age of 30, you know, whatever escalation happens in your life, birthdays after birthdays, uh, so many people have set the standard of like, oh, you're on your way out. And it's like, just not true. It's, it's not true at all. Um, do you think part of that though, for you has been because you've been able to be balanced much longer than a lot of people that now we are seeing, you know, the surge of Kate Grace, which is so necessary um, and so timely and so deserved. Yeah, thank you. No, I I think so. Yes. I mean, I think definitely I was late bloomer. And if you have like a training age, I think of myself as I'm probably like four years younger in terms of like what my body has gone through. It is also interesting, though. It's always funny looking back and like, shoot, would it have been awesome to just really go all in starting when I was 18? And then you just like hit the hormones and the timing and everything like at that peak, whatever, a few years ago. But Honestly, the way it's all worked, it's like at this point, you can't have regrets. So part of me is like, oh man, I maybe could have had a little bit longer where I was like seeing these really top performances. But that said, also, it's been just awesome being able to kind of uh, surprise myself. And I feel like, yeah, go against the normal expectation of what you can expect for an athlete over 30. And that in itself has been like, awesome. So not yeah. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go with it and be happy for it. But yeah, 100%. I think time off or taking it way slower when I was younger. And honestly, even recently, like last year during COVID, I had an Achilles thing, and I took a ton of time off. I even pretty strict basically since 2015. I've been like, very much go, 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 not much, not just normal pro athlete, whatever, like you're going all the time or with a little bit of a break each year. And I think last year, I took like, two months off ended up being almost three months and in a way I want to say part of this year like I do think sometimes it just helps so much to like rejuvenate all of the good juju and hormones and whatever things people start missing uh, so that I think I am benefiting from now I love that I, so I loved um you brought this up I don't know Alicia if you saw the quick email we had where Kate brought up sort of the business side of track and field, which I know you all, you have some good stuff to dive into on. Kate, do you want to talk a little bit about like the difference of perspectives the group you're in now has on like racing for money and the sort of viewing yourself as a small business versus the way it was in some of the other groups where it was more like purist and like just the way the sport's evolving that way and what balance you can strike between those two things. Yeah, I'm so interested in your guys' thoughts also on this, just from your careers. Mm -hmm. I have, again, I think it happens for a lot of athletes. You're naive, you come in, your one goal is like, okay, I want to go to the Olympics. And then sometimes also like coaches will play into that and you're taught, especially in the distances, like nothing else matters. It's almost like a shameful thing to try to run for money or decide on where you're going to run based on prize money. And it really is just about, okay, no, we're doing it for the love of it. We're going to sacrifice whatever. And in the end, it'll pay off. And it's almost like a moral thing. Like it'll pay off and we're going to be better for it because we didn't go for money. Um, 
And I do think that there's a lot of value in like, whatever, training hard and really picking your schedule. But it's just been funny this last few weeks. I mean, the Diamond League is like 10,000 throw in, which is published. And there's other bonuses involved. And then like, it's just interesting when I, I've made more money in the last like two weeks as a pro athlete than I've like probably ever made within a short period of time with, with running, uh, which is nothing I'm like, wait, I'm just doing this for 10 years. Like what have I been doing the whole time? Well, like, like, yeah. in, in Jerry's group, you guys didn't race very often. It was like all the eggs were in the basket of world championship. Right? Sometimes I'm thinking like, Oh, like, I'm not going for this Olympic team. I better run all the diamond leagues. <laughs> nobody else runs it. This will be amazing. I know. Like no one else is running them the last few weeks. I'm like, shit, let's do it. Right. Um, yeah. 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 And again, you can't knock the other us because like, obviously, I mean, people are running American records like left and right over there. So that, that kind of stuff, you can never say that it's a bad model. But I do, I really appreciate right now training with Emma and then Joe, her husband, kind of in a way, because also like their couple and their livelihood also depends on this, like very much understand that there is a balance to be had between like racing and just the fact that it is cool. You can make money at races and also like wanting to have great performances and go for medals and whatever. Um, So it's not like they're only, it's not like it's that's the only option, but I just like that it's also on the table. Although we can at least acknowledge it. Like it's not shameful to be like, right. oh, those prize money here. Like that, that's something yeah. that is kind of cool. That's a great point. Bring home the bacon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's part of it. Like, I think like if there, there definitely are times of the year where it's like, look, you got to focus and we're peaking for this race and we work back from there. But I don't mm-hmm. think it's necessary to like cut out all the, like for, like I, like, for example, we have a whole road season. And mm-hmm. I mean, it does like you're lucky with the road, but yeah, well, you are. But yeah. then we also don't really get an off season. So you have to be kind of careful. But it is like I remember when I first came to Providence, I was on a really low contract for like a year and a half. And Ray was like, my coach said, oh, you'll be OK, because you can double that on the roads. And I was like, whoa, really? And he's like, yeah, that's what we do. Like in the fall, pick a couple races and you'll be OK. So it makes your career less stressful, actually, if you know, like I can build this in here. And it's fun. So you want to have a little bit of just like, oh, like, mm-hmm. let's try this. And it, it supplements the whole process. Yeah. Right. I love it. Honestly, I mean, I've even, this is the first time I've even, I've never had a coach even discuss that. It's like, it's the taboo in any group where we even discuss, and I've trained in like four different places before this, like anywhere, it was taboo even to discuss contracts, like how much you're making, kind of, as you're saying, like if you're making a low amount, that it would be even worthwhile. But it makes total sense. Like the coach, I don't know. It makes sense yeah. to me that the coaches like appreciate that, that yeah. that is necessary. People are privileged to assume that every athlete is making enough money to like right? off of, which is like, there's a very small percentage of athletes that are actually making a legitimate income to like live off of longer term. That's a lot of times why we see this squad and people being like, guys, I'm out. I got it. I tried for that dream for this period of time. I can't do this like mm-hmm. time in and time out. I'm not trying to live in my well, car. There's other benefits than the money too. Like I know the best exposure and promotion I've ever got as an athlete is from New York Roadrunners and the way they promote you when you do their events more so than Mm -hmm. my shoe company, more so than any other company I've partnered with. So like racing puts you out there and then there's so much more trickle down that can come from maybe just adding a few others. Right. Also, I mean, I think I'm benefiting right now just from racing. Like I think sometimes, Mm -hmm. especially from middle distance runners, 
it's different. I do see how it's different for 5K, like 10K mm-hmm. athletes. That I mean, I guess that's you, Molly, but like that I could see how someone, it really is important to not have that. But I think for me, for a while, I just didn't race enough. Like you kind of, I kind of get better the more you practice it a little bit, or there's some kind of balance there. There's a balance um, there for sure. I think for like middle, at least for the eight, I think the timing of when you race a lot is not, it's not early on. It's more where you're at right now, where you get to see like, okay, I'm already like there. So let me keep like kind of tapping that away versus like, I think like, I don't know, everybody else can chime in and get in the comment section, you know, <laughs> but where it's like, you can, you kind of can use 5Ks and 10Ks early on as like tempos and kind of do them throughout the year. For us, it's like, you have to be in like the right system. You have to have already built this base of like distance running and pretend like you're a, 5k runner, <laughs> you know, and then, then you, you tap into like that 12 week period before a major championship, you know, where you're really hitting all of that speed endurance work, where you're like kind of driving yourself to the ground a little bit and showing yourself, Hey, I can run fast for a long period of time over and over and over again. And then you want to kind of use that. Cause you can't, you can't hold that. Yeah. That's all a good point. Long. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, I know I'm amazing. You know, what I mean? <laughs> well, the 800. It, I feel like the 800. I feel like I say this every year. I'm like, oh, the 800 is the most exciting event this year. And then like next year, I'm like, hey, the 800 is like the one to watch this year. So it's, it's you know what? And I get it. When people, I'm biased in a lot of ways when I think about it. But also when you think about the training of the, eight, I get why people say it's the hardest one. It's like the, it's the hardest to sustain for a long period of time. You have to like really be ready to run fast. So like Kate said, you know, if I'm at the trials and I know I'm in really good shape, even though I didn't make the team, like I'm going to race this out because I know this is like bomb right now. You guys are about to like, oh, oh let me not run rounds. Let me run one race at a time and like pop off. You know what I mean? I'm about to get yeah. off of the top 10 list. <laughs> well, let's talk about the times too. Like I thought let's that was interesting. Five. So like Kate, you had mentioned with the spikes, it's like, I, I don't know if you would agree with this is 158 the new two flat with the spikes I mean we're seeing people just like pop off these like really fast times in a lot of depth like what are your thoughts on how they work for you or like where where are the record books gonna go the next few years oh my gosh 100 no if anything this is why I'm like not embarrassed to have this but yeah like I mean it's interesting talking especially to you guys because you you both have amazing times from before time also like the before time before the spike time <laughs> no, remember when you were running on cinder blocks <laughs> i legit had a cinder track in high school actually <laughs> no what i'm thinking about like even 2016 when i was running it i'm like that was i was running it was barefoot that's barefoot compared to what we're running in now like it literally should not it should not compare like me even the fact that you say like me now like uh whatever your top times alicia like it should be we should freeze those times there is no comparison with what is happening right now and it's crazy that people aren't like i mean people were talking about it a lot but it's across the board like the 1500 the five every across the board everyone just like i want a world point, record twice in a week yeah i really feel at one point and like we have to just reset what we think yeah we just have to just reset what the times mean like at this point breaking two is like not at all what it meant whatever however yeah. many years ago but I mean, it's also like, whatever, it's exciting for everybody. So you don't want to take away from them. And even for me, like those times, I, for me, what I'm saying right now that I'm excited about, it's always about competing. And so that's when it was fun just to like get in races, compete for the win or like place and hopefully continue to do that this year. Like that, I think is what makes the sport great. And we'll still have that because now basically everyone's wearing the same kind of spikes. 
but yeah. As I long as everyone's wearing the same type of pogo sticks, you know? Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> my complaint when it took the lag time. If the lag time is a year or longer, then you have someone competing for like a whole season with like such a, um, I think they work differently for different people, but more or less a disadvantage. So yeah. once we're all cut up, fine. But like, you can't really guarantee that one company is going to be on the same page as another one. So Right. I mean, I think at this point, basically... It seems like most companies have them. If not, mm-hmm. that then people are just letting them wear other spikes, right? Yeah. I mean, that's... Yes. Saucony yeah. came out with a pair right before the trials. Theirs are good. So it seems like we're kind of all in the same ballpark. You guys, I'm just going to say right now, I don't own a pair of spikes. <laughs> Literally, I don't <laughs> own a pair of spikes. Zero. Zero spikes. I went into like a cold turkey contender to be like, Mama, you still got this? And I ran 133 and like, just what? like basic trunner like i was like you know no. they were great shoes but they weren't spikes or anything like that on the track wait you like so what do you what are your thoughts that like alicia would you wear them if someone gave them to you or are you um, um there's like a purist element to this too kind of like with the prize yeah. money thing where some people just don't. i feel like you know, i didn't want to at first but i'm like i have to know because everyone is <laughs> I have a middle ground on this. This is, by the way, you guys' podcast is not about me or Molly. It's a um, conversation. It's a conversation. Okay. Yeah. But, um, I feel like I would I would probably Nick Simmons it, like, right? Like, I would probably be like, all right, guys, we're going to make a YouTube episode. Let's talk about these bikes. <laughs> I'd want to be in really good shape to try them out. I don't want to just be like, you know, what I just did like a couple weeks ago. I was like, we'll just see what's going on here. Um and then put them on. Or maybe I would. Maybe I'd do one, one week, you know, just like, let's throw this out and then put on the spikes for the next one and see what happens. But I don't know. Yeah, I think the answer is yes. Sure. Why not? Um, I have a problem with wearing the swoosh, but that's no problem. Hey, everybody, Kate didn't say that. At least you did. Keep her. <laughs> Pay her her money. You know, just to give people a little bit of understanding of the sport in general, maybe we could touch a little bit about the business of sport. Again, I think top few things for people to recognize is a very small percentage of people make six figures. Most people live below the poverty line in the sport for an opportunity to just like compete for the Olympics. And I just want to say, and Kate, like I want to hear from you on this, is like the Olympics isn't everything. It, it seems like it's everything. And some people want to go for multiple Olympic teams. They want to go for Olympic teams until they're like, you know, just done with the sport, which makes sense in a lot of ways. For us, at least for me, when I was coming out, like it, there wasn't that much opportunity for a long time that I was like, dude, I just want to make something off metal. And then like, if you don't metal, then you keep kind of keep going. It's not just to say like, I made this many Olympic teams. Now it's kind of changing a little bit, but if there's money behind how many Olympic teams you make, then that makes sense to me. Cause it is true. Like you have to be able to sustain your livelihood. Kate, I want to hear what you think about. Um, other opportunities that you see for yourself to sustain your livelihood and like where else you'd see yourself if you were not a professional athlete. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you in terms of Olympics are not everything, but it definitely, I mean, it definitely helps. Honestly, everything that happened in 2016, I didn't even like really fully appreciate like the amount, just like how it does change things. So you will say you're an Olympian. Yep. You don't I almost didn't even like want to like fully admit that like that that changes so much in terms of your marketability, especially in middle distances. I think it is different in some of these races that are like yeah. or like events like field events or different events that maybe aren't as popular. But it does make a huge difference in terms of 
uh, I feel like for years after that, I was still, even after like running better in different places, like still uh, benefiting from that, which, so I see why everyone like kind of puts a ton of eggs in that basket. I do wish you would, yeah, you wish that like over the long term, the sport would be able to be more sustainable and like, I don't know, have, have it so that athletes could be making a decent living, not just once every four years or not just based on what happens once every four years. Right. Like, right. um, like yeah, being like I mean, some sort of club and like, yeah. And this is how much you make regardless of it. And then maybe like a bump if you make the team. Yeah. Or just, I mean, even just like the league, like leagues and having people race more and having people care that people are racing. Cause I mean, it only matters if people are racing, if like you're getting yeah. airtime and your sponsors are yeah. getting, are being happy. I mean, definitely it's becoming more so a thing where like people can make a good like make a good living based on like being an athlete plus like a lot of kind of social media stuff i've never honestly been very good at that i feel like i always i'm pretty i don't know just like a little shy about it but i realized also that at one point you kind of have to get over yourself and just do it because i don't know it just it does in the end like it does kind of it moves the needle at some point and like i don't I mean i don't know you have to like try hustle a little bit um that's one thing also that i admire about emma other people i mean colleen is someone that i've trained with before people that like are unabashed about like hey, i'm doing this i'm going after like gonna do the social media thing and do it well and yeah. that i mean i'm like you know what like good on you you make money from it i don't know like i uh this is I think also, in that way yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's changed mm-hmm. a lot which it, i mean it's, i think it's good because it gives people opportunities it's kind of weird because if you go into it thinking like oh my whole goal is to be a good athlete but then actually like there's this whole other side that's nothing about being an athlete mm-hmm. um yeah you know i think that it used to be that though prior to social media you i mean honestly i i'm like oh man i i keep trying to like run a little bit faster <laughs> and then i'm like i am in pretty much a lot of the social media world and it's exhausting a little bit you know of, very grateful for all the opportunities not to say that at all but at the same time it's like all the meetings you have with all the people that want these certain things from social media that like you know right before social media became a thing when i was just like just running it was very nice to just go home and not to do any meetings you know 2020 in the zoom world i didn't have to be a part of that i would have just been like i'm running and i get to rest and i get to wear whatever your brand is or drink it or whatever the whole thing is and try to make it like part of an interview and then do the thing over and over and over again. It's so different now. So. Totally. I feel like that that's something that like when I first started running, Instagram was almost like self-absorbed and like yeah. running is such a like, um, okay. has that purest element where people are kind of judgy about it. But I have seen it become more and more, you know, hey, it's a business. It's an industry. We're part influencer, part athlete, now, <laughs> basically. The word so, influencer, I don't know how much I'm going to get used to that person of influence I think I like mm-hmm. always just be like I happen to be a person of influence <laughs> like human being point, of influence right but <laughs> my point about it though is like the other side of that is how much more opportunity you have to live beyond not making a team totally yeah like you have more opportunity to do that than you did beforehand it was like really yeah. all we needed you for was to make this team and you didn't do that one thing I you think people. Then you're like. <laughs> I think people are seeing how it gives them more dimensions and more yeah. avenues. Even though now we're figuring out, like, how do you balance? Like, like you said, Alicia, there are a lot of meetings. You have to like mm-hmm. go, you know, report your views and your stats to some places. There's a well, whole thing to it. Listeners is like, 
if you guys support these athletes though, and know this is part of the business, just like their posts and just engage and comment anyway. Cause like you're supporting them by doing that. Don't be like a giveaway again. It's so true. It's such a good point. (laughs) So we talked about where you started in the sport. We talked about a little bit. We didn't talk too much about the summer that you had, this amazing summer that you had. I want to kind of touch in on a few things. You touched on 2016 and what it meant to be an Olympian in 2016. I could also share that that really, you know, how important it is and the dichotomy of that. I raced against you in 2016. I was one of the athletes that was involved in that tangle and that crash. And the difference at that time, because that's when social media was kind of shifting of being like, oh, you didn't make that team. And it was devastating for a lot of us that didn't make that team. On the other side, I wanted to ask you, like, when you saw yourself make the Olympic team in 2016, how much you saw what you were capable of doing, perhaps, in Rio? I think a lot of the storyline was, you know, Kate Grace, your mom, which let's talk about her too, um, making the Olympic team. And I heard a lot about it being like this kind of like no-namer. And for some reason, for me, I hate when people say that. And I want to know from you, like, how does it feel to, one, be almost called like a no-namer and making this Olympic team? Because making Olympic team is hard. By the way, I'm just going to say this out the gate. Part of the race is running 800 meters. You have to run all of it on your two feet and you have to cross the finish line. That's like making, that's the race. And whoever does that wins the race. Second, third also follows too. And so I want to know from you how you kind of blocked out that noise, still allowed yourself an opportunity to do your very best and make the final of the games. And if you felt like that was your potential at that time, or if there's something more that you wanted to prove. It's, um, I have, we were talking about this. I feel like we're so linked because of that race. And I still have like weird emotions not emotions, but just like, uh, I feel bad about it. I don't know. It's like, it, it, it's such a strange, it was such a strange thing. Cause yes, for me, like, as I was saying, like more and more realized, like how much changed after that. And honestly, for me, cause at the time, like what I told myself is, you know what? Like I was ready to make that team, but was I ready to win that race? Like, I mean, no, you never know. But like, that is something that I was never, and I still feel uncomfortable about it. But I realized that like, I benefited a ton from it. And um, yeah, it's like, uh, I don't know. I get even weird right now talking about it. It's like, it's one of those things that you realize that like stuff ha- shit happens that like, and you can't really do anything, but make, I guess, like make the most of the opportunity when you're given it. And that was a big thing for me for that summer was like, okay, this happened. It was huge for me. I'd been like out of it. I had run pretty well in 2013 and then like kind of moved around and like had been out of it for a few years. So for me personally, like to come back that year and start performing really well was like, I felt like I was in control of that and that I was proud of that. But there's also this like huge element of luck that was happening that I didn't really know how to, like, how, how do I deal with that? You know, if I went back now, I'd probably address it more, but I don't know. It was like also such a crazy whirlwind. Um, but my big thing was like, okay, I'm here. Like, let's make the most of this. I think I can run better. Like I want, I want to be in control of what happens or like do the best I can with what has happened. Um, so that I ended up, that is what I would be say. Like from that summer, I was so like, I guess, proud of myself to then be able to perform well to PR again in Rio and like make the final. And that was my first 
team ever. Like I had never made a, a team. So I guess in a sense, I was a no-namer, but I also was like kind of happy about that because I was like, I don't know. It was kind of cool for me to be able to see, again, not the implication that it was um, somehow like undeserved, but once I was able to do well with it, be like, no, yeah, like I was able to pull this together and get myself to a place where even after... I'm a little bit late to the game or whatever. It takes me a few years longer, but like I'm good and I've been able to like make it all come together and I can, I'm now running well and I'm proving that I can run well enough to like really compete at these games. So that I was like happy with. And again, at the time, yeah, I mean, it was that I felt like I was giving it my all at that time. Like I ended up making the final. That was huge. But then I think I got last in the final. But it was also like I'd never really been in that situation before. I'd never in been in PR, a championship. You ran right. A PR, PR. there. Yeah. So I, and I think I ran like two flat and one fifty eight, which that two days in a row was like huge for me. So I was basically just tapped out by the final. Mm-hmm. Um and then I, I came back again. I ran I, but I came back like a few weeks later in Zurich and ended up fifth there and PR'd again. So like the whole summer, I felt like I really ran up to my potential. But yeah. also, honestly, I finished, I mean, well, I didn't, looking back, I look back and I was like, I wasn't even training for that long. Like, I honestly was training for the 15 until like halfway through the year. But the whole reason why I went one to go back to the eight this year was I finally was like, wait, I didn't even train that much for the eight. And I was like pretty good at it. And like, or, I mean, I, I trained in, in college, but like my coaches always pushed me to the 15. I was like, I proved that like within a short period of time, I trained for the eight. I ran 158, which at the time was mattered more. And like, I ran pretty well against everyone. So I think I could do better. So with the training I had in 2016, I think I ran pretty much to my training. But basically the whole reason this year happened was like, no, I think if I gave myself more training and now with more like face or whatever, I can improve. Yeah. Well, you definitely, yeah. if you so make you the 2016, not that. Go ahead, Molly. Oh, I was just going to say, if you make the Olympic final in the eight, like it's just clear that's yeah. your, your talent set. You did make a switch first. So, like, let's talk about the switch from 2016 through 2020, including that switch from the Bowerman Track Club to Joe and then um, Molly. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I actually I switched so many times i actually switched first to bowerman <laughs> i know part of me is like am i just like am i just flake am i just a flake or just like a horrible person but honestly no i think i you gotta find also, what works you gotta yeah that's how it works also yeah. like, again, late late bloomer like i didn't really have opportunities i mean not didn't have but like as i have grown in the sport i've had different places i could go like that and also with money, like there's a reason you you could you go to different places because like, oh, my sponsor's here and I'm going to be really supported in this one setting. Like this makes sense to go here. Anyway, back on track. After 2016, I basically immediately was like, okay, I should run the 1500 now, which looking back, I'm like, why was I thinking that? But honestly, I think part of it was an age thing. I think like, I was like, okay, I'm 27. I'm getting older. I've always been like pretty good at being able to do the like long, the long stuff. So let's try to do 15. So almost immediately I switched to the 1500. I made the world team the next year in the 1500. And then like was looking at different options and was saying, okay, Bowerman is the premier distance group. Like, let me go try to train with Jerry and be a 1500 meter runner. And yeah, it's funny. Like looking back now, like why basically my whole career, I've basically been 1500, but I'll just like have small little dabbles of the eight. And it's really only my high school coach who still texts me, who's still like, Kate, you're an meter runner, stay with the 800. And 
every other coach sees me and sees me run like a few tempos is like, oh, you're pretty good at this. Like you should move up. But logically, the more you think about it, you're like, no, whenever I run the eight, I can be like almost immediately relatively competitive. And the 15, I'm always like a tiny bit of a tear down. Like I'm pretty competitive in the US, but like not quite there. And I think finally I just got less scared. And even, I don't know why, it was getting older, but I was like, you know what? Why do I keep trying to force this when clearly I love the 800 and I'm like, I'm good at it. Um, And so that's when I went to Joe. So basically after 2019 is when I like, I ran an eight. I wanted to actually run the eight at USA's, but it was just too late and we decided not to. And I was majorly regretted that because I ended up not making the team the 1500 anyway. But I really wanted to run the eight that year and we would have had four people at Worlds. So it would have been, I was like one of five people with the time. So the whole thing was like just major regret. Like I, if I basically, if I had made the final in the 800, I would have gone to Worlds because I was the only other person in the final with the time. But, but we just thought like, oh, 15 is going to be easier to make. We didn't think through the four people thing. Ended up, I was running well. It was just like the fastest 1500 time ever or whatever. 15, um, and I basically finished that year being like, that was a mistake. And I hate the, and it's just the worst feeling thinking like you chose the wrong thing. And partly like, I felt like it was, yeah, I don't know. The, I like, I wasn't, I don't know, like we just wasn't the the good call from the group of us. And after that year was basically like, okay, the fact that I had this such strong emotion and I had this gut, but I didn't go with my gut was like my sign that for next year, I'm going for the eight, like for, for the Olympics, I'm going for the eight. And then COVID happened and it like took me way longer to get to that point. But um, hey, the COVID worked out in your favor because you were injured last year. Yeah. Yeah. I love that so much, Kate. Like, I think that insight is so important to just like hear that. But also what I'm hearing is how much passion and loving what you do matters. I mean, it's like across the board for everybody. And I think that's really relatable. Um, and if you're like, somebody else is telling me to do this, mm-hmm. not to say you're not going to give your all, but also like you have so much more potential and say in how well you do in something when you believe that you can do it plus talent. Well, so you're think- right. People tell stories that just aren't always true. It's like, oh, well, if you're this age, you should move up. And it's like, well, really look oh, at what's going yeah. on in practice. Like, well, how yeah. are you doing though? Like, is, that's just a generalization, you know? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I think also it's funny. I feel like people just look at, I've coached, coaches just look at me and they think, dist- in a weird way, it's like they think distance runner. And I've been in these distance groups and I've always had these coaches and yeah, it's like, wait, just look at the times. And actually, if you look at my training, it actually does not make sense. Like, I actually am, I don't know. It just like, it's been good for me to finally realize. And again, it's like only my high school coach who's always been like, hey, you just stay with the eight. You're good at this. You're fast. But I just, um, took me a while to get there, but I'm, I'm there finally. And that's when I finally, that's so when I reached out to Joe, it was like basically immediately, okay, this is, I want to do this. We're going with the eight. And I think that's one thing that I, really like the way that we're working with like working with him as a coach is he like listens to that and then basically helped me to it. So I love that so much. Okay. So you shared um, an Instagram post about something you wrote in your journal about having a leap of faith to go with team boss. Um, And it was like, there was a very funny liner in there that I completely relate with. That was like, Um, but I wanted to just like elaborate on that, like what that meant to you. Yeah. I, again, I think it's kind of an evolution as even just saying like 
a little bit of a windy career. It didn't take me a little bit longer for me to like have the confidence to go with what you're saying. Like what I believe in myself, that that is going to matter the most and like what I think I need as a runner. And so that was probably the evolution of it that, okay, if I'm going to be middle distance, like let's go for middle distance coach. Like let's find, um, if I'm going to do this, as we know, there's only a certain amount of time in your career and ever like time limited. And so may as well like go all in quote unquote and not have any regrets with it. And that's again, kind of what came out of 2019, even with the choosing of the events. It's like, okay, I can live with not making this team if I feel like I've been true to myself. Right. And I was really excited about it, but also at the time felt it was a good group, but it was like a, I mean, definitely a little bit more like, I don't know, just like people don't fully know what to make of like groups that are a bunch of different types of athletes. And Joe is like Emma's husband, who's our age. Um, so maybe like not as quite as many accolades, although it's funny, like she's had two world medals. So it's interesting with like coaches who are husbands. I feel like they're always kind of like not thought of as, I mean, I don't know, Molly, if you can talk to this also with Kurt, like it's almost like they're kind of put in a different category. Drew also, Drew Wartenberg was the same. He's Kim Conley's coach. He's the one that coached me in 2016. These people are incredible coaches. If anything, I think there's like this amazing, like the spouse coach has more insight because they really understand like the craziness, all else that goes into an athlete. But they're mm-hmm. kind of like, people just, I think, assume that Emma is good enough that anyone could coach her. You know, like, they don't think mm-hmm. like, oh, actually, no, like Joe is the one that is helped. I mean, she also is incredible, but like also he's coached her to two world medals. Totally. And, and also through like all of the things. Yeah. And yeah. Lot, I'm sure a lot of the time, even when she was coached by Mark, he was there for the ride, almost being like, I don't want to, well, I don't want to say that's what they were doing, but I know with me, it's like, well, Kurt was like proxy coaching a lot of the time when I wasn't around Ray, you know, watching a workout right. or helping with a workout. So like, they're very much involved in like knowing what the training is and understanding totally. it and stuff. Totally. I mean, I a hundred percent would not have Lou coach me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we can talk about the dynamic that the power dynamic that would never yeah. work between me and my husband but i will say like he was more there than tony was like he was there with the watch like oh i get what you need to be doing so what is the time you need to hit what's the rest i'm totally i'm totally with you i could never have patrick coach me yeah. um but I do love the like spouse coach. So I'm my, this is my ideal situation. It's like, it's your husband. <laughs> they can just be my coach. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. And I think also just because he's so maybe I'm not, I'm not I don't want to speak for them, but like so closely connected to her in so many different ways also recognizes like how much of a real person this, <laughs> this human is versus like just a machine. I don't know. I think yeah. coaching sometimes, can come from that perspective. It's hard. It's hard. There's so many different types of coaching. There's the ones that, you know, maybe weren't great athletes themselves, but understand it really well and can like dial things in. There's the ones that were really good athletes and then try to implement what they did with athletes. Yeah. The blow up sort of situation a lot of times. And then there's the husband, you know, wife, which I also see the same thing. I see that it, it seems to work most of the time if they like actually know the sport. Again, I do think... I mean, I really respect the relationship that can deal with it though. I mean, again, Emma and Joe are incredible. Like you were saying, like I could not do that in my relationship. <laughs> so no. I don't know what kind of person, what it means that you're they're able to, but I need Lou yeah. to not talk to me about track and field at all. We need to talk about <laughs> soccer. We need to talk about like what's your favorite Skittle? Uh yeah. like, you know, what's the difference with all the flavor? Like, I need different. Yeah, <laughs> right. For sure. It's 
It's hard because coaching, I mean, there are different kinds of coaching, but most of it is they have a slight like authority over the situation. And so mm-hmm. it would just be, yeah, I just would have a hard time with that, with that part. Yeah. But the, re- the reason why I like it is because I think it's a combo. I feel like with coaches, it's like you need the science and then you need like the art of it. Right. And yeah. so totally. usually it's like they're knowledgeable. So knowledgeable is great. But then there's also the coaches. And I think that gag is a great example of just like you just make your athlete like want to die for you. Like you just like your athlete loves you. You, they feel so supported. And again, you're right. Alicia, like I think something about the coaches that are spouses, they understand, yeah, like that motivational aspect or something. Um, Because maybe they've had practice like with their spouse doing it. I don't know. But it's like a good combo of the two. Mm-hmm. Totally. So, okay, Kate, we got to connect on quite a few things. We talked about dedication. We talked about a slew of other things. One of the things like, and you can totally tell me if this is off limits, your like response that you got from being with Bowerman Track Club, leaving the Bowerman Track Club, and then people asking about it. The reason why you left with Bowerman Track Club is because of Shelby Houlihan. And now, guys, I want to say this right now out of the gate, in case she says this is on limits, <laughs> <laughs> is like I don't like to do interviews about other people when I'm talking about someone else, but I, I do understand like the mental like that ends up happening a lot of times when other people's situations are brought into what I'm trying yeah. to do. So I think that's more of what I'm asking Kate, just to kind of like, yeah. How did you handle those thought processes, those perhaps implications of why you left and then kind of just stay the course, knowing that you still have these group of people that you connected with a really big deal in track of field. We can't pretend that, you know, you weren't there at the time and like how you handle all of that. Yeah. I mean, I guess the biggest thing is just that, which is like the timeline of it, which is basically I left end of December. And according to everything that that she said, like she was notified in mid January. So nothing about I left before anything, like before there was any indication that they knew that there had been like an issue with the test. And so there was nothing to do with me leaving that had anything to do with the test. Um, and I mean, at one point, like the biggest thing, which, yeah, I don't, I know, no, no, nothing besides what's been publicly said, but like the biggest thing for me is that you, when you train with someone, you live with them, like, you know, them and you just feel like devastated for them and just knowing her and knowing, um, how much she loves the sport. Like, that's the only feeling that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's also a little bit, yes, I was asked I get to have the tiniest taste of like people asking and trying to figure out different things. And so biggest thing for me is like, I'm not, I'm not even on the team right now and I'm getting this. Like I can't imagine everyone else is dealing with who's on yeah. that team. Who's having to prepare for the trials also. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, I guess the last thing is just like, the only thing that made me angry was like people, it, which again, I think everyone, the information needs to come out and whatever people, but like the biggest thing is like people start, talking kind of crap about like team culture and that's like there was it was mm. an incredible team culture it was like really positive there was, it was so clean like to it like not, not 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 to a fault but i'm saying like there was it was if anything there was like a little bit there was it was lax in terms of oversight on the athletes about what we're doing outside of training like the, the coaches it was not this kind of like culture you hear about where you're getting micromanaged by coaches and whatever and it was just like very it was pure culture. I don't know. That's all I can say about my experience there. So, mm-hmm. oh, I love that. I think that's really great. I think that's great for people to hear. Just like 
really, you know, one that it didn't seem to be too much into your focus and your training for trials, which is good, right? That you got to still do your thing without people messing with your focus. Because it had, I mean, definitely those three days was insane. But yeah, luckily, I was also the second half yeah. of the trials, so mm-hmm. that those it was that was a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and just like you're finding out all this information, and uh, it was it was crazy. Yeah, and people were so excited. People like love to gossip, so they're you know they're just mm-hmm. like. Um, but mm-hmm. also, my race was like the second. I was happy my race was the second week of the trials because that mm-hmm. would that would have been a lot to like go straight to a race. Totally. And then the other thing, just talking about team culture and just like pulling away the assumption of like, in order to be on like a team of a lot of good athletes, you have to be some sort of way where your coach is being a weirdo. And that is not, doesn't seem to be the case, what you're yeah. saying. So I love that. I think that's good. I think that's good advice. So, um, yeah, those are one of the things I just wanted to make sure, like whatever we talked about here, that there wasn't things that we were just like leaving out as if you know, that wouldn't be questions people would want to know with Kate Grace and her story and like how that fit into where you are now. Okay. So part of keeping track, a big part of it is just to really help tell like, you know, your story, stories of women athletes. And I think one of the things I want to know is like, how else can we best support you? Like, what do you got going on? What do you want to do in the future? Uh, What do you want to do in running that people can support you in? Oh, I still wonder in the future. It always it keeps changing. <laughs> things have changed the longer I've run. But I think one of the things that's been funny with, not funny, but interesting with my career, just like I have moved around a lot. And I mean, I guess it's interesting talking to you guys. I think as an athlete, I've definitely tried to like take control of my running and my career. And like, even the one thing that was kind of annoying me, even with those last few weeks is people asking like if I was trained badly in the past few years and that's not at all the case like it was more my choice that I was going to a different event and mm-hmm. so I maybe that was the wrong choice but I felt like it was mine to make it wasn't like someone else like some like overlord coach telling me like training me poorly and I think people mistake don't understand like how much of a role athletes have in their development and I feel like in many ways I have tried to like make moves and make decisions that are going to benefit me as I move on, as, as I move through my career, maybe I've like been a little bit rash sometimes, but at least I felt like they were mine to make. And sometimes people talk about pro runners, like we're children or something, or like we're being like, we're like pawns of coaches, which is just not the case, you know? So that's kind of a tangent. <laughs> that's just something I thought of. <laughs> I like that tangent. Cause it's like, um, like coaches have an authority, but it's when you gave them over your training so that you don't have to worry about it. But like, you're in charge, right. like, they're more directing you. Like it's a collaboration. Like you're in charge of what we're not, we don't have handlers people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, people were even talking about side note, because this is not really about any of us. None of us are going to actually to Tokyo, but people were just like, all these privileged athletes get to go to their Olympic games. I don't think the game should go on, which I am so totally torn on that, by the way, not to make it about that. Um, but it's not like, you know, it's like, Oh, make my show go. Like it really isn't like that. It's just like this no. assumption that I don't know, like everybody's gets billions of dollars rained down on them to like do the show. And it's like, actually like no one's really making money to do it unless you get one of those top three spots and it's still not what you'd expect yeah no it is i mean it's funny how people always talk shit about the olympics like in the year yeah i mean right now yeah yeah i mean i think it's interesting to talk about stuff like long term the idea 
I mean, I don't know. The Olympics were such a cool thing, you know? Like, what other event takes, I guess, the World Cup, like, brings the whole world together? But the Olympics is both genders, you know? It's so special. Mm-hmm. I feel like there must be, there has to be a way to make it continue to happen. In a, but like, I could see people try to, whatever, evolve it, and maybe, like, mm-hmm. have it not be in different countries all the time. But I don't know. Well, we're going to yeah. put it in here. <laughs> we could definitely make it more of a sustainably like directed thing like it doesn't yeah. be so no, you know wasteful and stuff but they're yeah. inspiring i hope yeah. <laughs> yeah there are so many other things that are pretty cool about Olympics. one thing i will say is like i don't love that in entertainment in general across the board that like the entertainers don't make a lot of money so if anything it's like the flip it's where like you know, you guys should be like, oh my gosh, get them there to like help yeah. them have an opportunity at something because it's like this show probably more than anything about who's putting it on. Like it's a ton of money and it's not really the athletes, the privileged, quote unquote, privileged athletes. It's not really yeah. it at all. Totally. The way it's up with the athletes is so weird. Also, this is worth changing, but like the way people talk about the like sex with the athletes is like they're talking about animals it's so weird to me that everyone's always so obsessed has with anyone the athletes. had a evidence of that even happening <laughs> i haven't seen no. or heard or <laughs> yeah nope and you guys this is not even to protect our friends me, me neither like i really, i think the only thing that could potentially be like a thought is like we track and field like we're at the back end so like people who are in the beginning could be done and like doing whatever they feel like doing because they're adult humans. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, like for, for me, I've been like, I don't even want to be on site most of the time. I'm like, it's too wild. I need to just pretend like I'm not at the Olympics or any national event. I need to pretend like I'm just at home, but it's just kind of like, I mean, it's funny. You're going for medal versus someone who maybe just got there wants to just party but yeah it's just like it's crazy again it's like animals yeah you're right like we're humans we're adults we're like all real people don't treat us i don't know like some weird show that you're talking about i don't know it's just funny they love it so much they're like dreaming like are you (laughs) about it Mm, and you're like get away from me you sicko (laughs) it's so true yeah anyway well kate this has been wonderful i think um I love that little side note that happened in there. So um, yeah, we can take it back if you do think of anything. I know anything so not much. often covered so by your story that you want to talk about. Um, yeah. and drop your you can drop your handles <laughs> here. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean mostly. Her, where can we follow you? Mostly Instagram, Fast Kate, all spelled out. Um, yeah, and I've been again tr- trying to do more social, so I'm on there more often now. <laughs> I love it at Fast Kate F A S T. K-A-T-E. Let's mm-hmm. do it. Awesome. Thank you so much for keeping track. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for having me. Keep track. Keep track. Keep track, keep track.
Major shout-outs to What Cheer Writers Club Podcasting Studio, a nonprofit supporting Rhode Island's content creators and where Roshin and I record, and to Rudy Nakashima for our funky outro song. Thanks, guys. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning or have never even heard of paddle, or padel as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with a pro tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!